Our Father, we are grateful for the world you've made and especially for the your purpose and the transition of the seasons that we enjoy, at least in this place, and um, the loveliness of uh, the trees as they change in their colors and the coolness of the air. And we pray that we would ever admire the beauty of uh, your world around us and the beauty of the life you've called us to, however difficult it may be at times, nevertheless, the, the richness of it according to your purpose. And we pray that you'd help us now as we continue in our study of this great gift that you've given us to be able to speak to one another uh, and to evidence your image in our hearts and minds and in our behavior and we pray that we would grow in fruitfulness in our study tonight and we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. All right. Um, we are undertaking a, a study that I've entitled Wholesome Words, The Believer's Calling to Godly Speech. Uh, last night, we looked at, uh, at the capacity for speech as being, uh, in fact, a representation of uh, our being created in the image of God. And tonight, uh, I want to take up um, what I'm calling how to do things with words. Uh, that may seem curious, but I hope you'll uh, bear with me and uh, see it through to the end. Last week, we looked at a dilemma, a dilemma pointed out to us, uh, uh, to paraphrase Dr. Gaffin, whose thought we were following, uh, the dilemma is of man, mankind, that is to say, men and women created in God's image, in his linguistic functions, as in all that he is and does, is to be understood as a creature who is created in the image and likeness of a linguistic God. In fact, we should say that especially in language, we reflect uh, the image, the divine image. But the, the dilemma was found in this. We further considered the destructive power of the fallen creature's actual use of language from a striking passage in uh, James. Here we saw the inescapable, undeniable reality of sin's destructive impact on our speech, its subversion of language, and our ability to communicate. And we concluded that the sinful use of language is properly understood to be preeminently blasphemy. That is to take something sacred and make it profane. Uh, here, the gift of language to be used in such a profane manner. That was James's uh, 
shock. How can you curse from the same mouth? Others created in the same image and yet praise God. But finally, we saw uh, that one who is, by God's grace, uh, capable, made, made able of hearing the truth that is in Jesus. That one is renewed in the spirit of his mind and has put on the new self in Christ, created in the likeness of God. Such a one is both called and enabled to let no corrupting talk come from his mouth, but only such is good for building up and as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. That's what Paul teaches in Ephesians 4. So that's our brief review. Now, what I've done, uh, and I, I, I hope this works, uh, I will have a, a, a great number of scripture texts that um, I'm going to refer to tonight, and I don't want to frustrate you entirely. Um, now I can't find the chat. That same thing happened to me last week. Um, on the bottom of your screen. No, it's not at the bottom. It, it, that What's happening is that, that uh, something about my little screen is shoving that off to the three dots that are to the right, meaning more. <laughs> um, let's see if this helps. No, that didn't help. Let me try again. Um, Do you want me to send a message into the chat and see if it lights up for you? Yeah, that'd be awesome. Thank you. Okay. I just typed test, sent it to everyone. And it went to more, but that's where chat's appearing, <laughs> isn't more. So there it is. All right. So what I'm going to try and do is put in that chat um, a document uh, that I hope you all will be able to enter into your... Um, me to everyone. Uh, did that work? Can you see that? Yeah, we got it. I can and, see it. 2A text cited, PDF. Yeah. Um, and so that will have all of the, the texts I'm going to cite tonight. And uh, whether you can follow it or not during our discussion, at least you'll have all of these texts here, but I, I, I hope that maybe you'd be able to even see it on your screen. But uh, for what it's worth, um, let's begin. In the, uh, in the middle of the 20th century, Anglo-American philosophy, now you hear an intro like that and all all of a sudden you're already said, what, did I get on the wrong uh, screen here? But bear with me. Anglo-American philosophy, very interested in the theory of knowledge. That is, how do we know what we know? Concluded that uh, 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 the only known things uh, 
are things seen, tasted, touched, heard. That was the extent of knowledge, properly speaking. That is, that knowledge was only things that came through the senses. Now, they included, as well, with that, certain logical categories uh, that constituted knowledge. And this theory of knowledge uh, came uh, also to be a, a theory about language. It means that the only things we could really speak about with any uh, meaning was the things that were testable. Uh, speech was about uh, things that had a truth value tested by something empirical, something that could be seen or felt. Uh, on this view, the chief view, view of language was the assertion of facts. Now, now, this view was profoundly attractive to many, not in part because it rid uh, philosophy of God. He, he can't be perceived by any sense, of the soul. We need not wonder about some inner self or anything else immaterial. And so it was quite uh, powerful in reinforcing um, an anti-Christian point of view. Whether it was adopted for that point of view or not, it was certainly adapted to that end. And this point of view was very popular it dominated most universities in England, uh, in Scotland, and in the United States. Uh, so much so that uh, departments of philosophy of religion virtually died out. Well, uh, that was because there was nothing for them to talk about. Although you'd have thought that might have been a kind of an attraction. Uh, but uh, in any case, uh, it was very popular until an extraordinary Christian philosopher noticed a slight problem with the theory. And that is this criteria for meaning, that, that, that is the only things that could be meaningfully spoken about, had to be testable by the senses or by certain logical propositions, didn't itself fit the criteria. It wasn't testable by the senses. And it wasn't obviously logically true. Now, that's a pretty serious defect uh, for a criteria of meaning. For it means that if it's true, it's meaningless. And that led to, happily, a reconsideration of these things. But this was not the only problem with the reigning philosophy. Um, it, it didn't account for our proper use of language that was far more than reporting facts about our senses or certain logical relations. And a wonderful philosopher, British philosopher of language in 1955 gave some lectures uh, entitled How to Do Things with Words. And what he pointed out was that the understanding of language that was dominant saw it as just a passive practice of describing a given reality. 
But what he pointed out was that language, in fact, uh, engaged reality. And in fact, he spoke about, uh, this is W.L. Austin, he spoke about speech acts. That language, in fact, was primarily about speech acts. That is, acts such as promising, I'll be there tomorrow. That doesn't describe any state of affairs or any logical relation. It simply describes, uh, it's an act of mind, what I intend to do. Uh, Giving orders, greeting people, warning them, inviting them. Congratulate them. Uh, He pointed out, in fact, that speech is very much a form of action. So, for example, if I'm at the bow of a great ship in dry dock that's just been built, and I take some champagne and shatter it against uh, the bow, and I say, I name this ship Queen Elizabeth, in all of these circumstances, in appropriate certain ways, I have done something special. Namely, I have performed the act of naming a ship. Here the sentence is not being used to describe or to state what one is doing, but it is to express what one is actually doing. Again, making a promise. I'll give you a hamburger tomorrow. A famous promise of the cartoons. Uh, I haven't here simply conveyed a truth in speaking as if I've done something. I've committed myself to you and determined my future behavior by what I have said. Speaking, in other words, does something another person is addressed. They are challenged to respond. Necessarily in speaking, some kind of relationship is established. There is a sense of responsibility and accountability with respect to what has been said. Now, all this may seem hopelessly abstract. I hope not. But the sages of Israel knew this truth about speaking very well. In fact, uh, we might even allege that J.L. Austin stole the title of his book, that in fact Proverbs is a book about how to do things with words. Here, we learn the place of speech in the skill of living well unto God. And this shouldn't surprise us, for words are essential to wisdom's enterprise. Recall Lady Wisdom. What does she cry out in Proverbs chapter 8? Beginning in verse 6, Hear, for I will speak noble things, And from my lips will come what is right, for my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. 
There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Down to verse 12. In wisdom I dwell with prudence. I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of Yahweh is the hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have I have insight. I have strength. The Proverbs is all about how to do things with words. The power of words. Consider Proverbs 18.20. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Now, here we see the wise man set forth the power of speech. We have a pair of sayings. They're identified as a pair by the repetition of fruit in the beginning of verse 20, and at the end of verse 21. They're identified as a pair by their common use of agricultural metaphors. And finally, they're identified as a pair by the image of eating. Verse 20 is a synonymous proverb. That is to say, the same thing is repeated twice. Words are the fruits of a man's mouth. There's the orchard metaphor. They're the yield of his lips. There's a harvest metaphor. As something that people feed upon, that is, the stomach satisfied, and he is satisfied. But it is peculiar in this, it's a kind of oxymoron. That is an expression that appears contradictory. For example, if I were to talk about a wise fool. The point is this. How can you satisfy your hungry and emptiness within by what comes out of your mouth? That seems a contradiction in terms. But what it does is it it forces one to reflect on the fact that what you dish out will return to you. As to say, what you say will have an impact upon others and that will return upon you. The great commentator uh, Derek Kidner put it this way, what's in view is your words, your words will catch up with you. Verse 21 shows then how crucial a matter this is. It is a matter of life and death. Of course, not just clinical life and death. The phrase comprehends all manner of blessing and curse. Here, the power of the tongue is displayed. And those who love it, uh, uh, that is, who are engaged in a commitment to its use, will find 
a profitable outcome. A similar theme is found in Proverbs 13:2. For the fruit of the from the fruit of his mouth a man eats what is good. But the appetite of the treacherous is for violence. Do you see the same peculiar dynamic at work? Or again from 12:14. From the fruit of his mouth a man is satisfied with good. And the work of a man's hands comes back to him. Notice in both the conjunction of words and work. We typically distinguish what between what you say and what you do. Learn here that this is not properly an absolute distinction. For what you say is a form of doing a very important form of doing. The sages want us to understand well that the things you do with words will come back to you. And thus our theme, the words of the wise, how to do things with words. The words of the wise Speaking is a huge subject in the Proverbs. One scholar has pointed out that over 20% of chapters 10 through 29 deal with speech. We are called by the sages to be masters of the word, deploying the right time at the right, excuse me, the right word at the right time for the right purpose. The right words bring life. The wrong words bring death. So too, the right words foster good relationships. And the right, the wrong words foster alienation. Words are able to reliably, but not exhaustively, report external and internal realities. Words, therefore, are crucial to relationships. Community depends upon communication. The Old Testament scholar uh, Bruce Wilkie uses the term eloquentia for the commended speech in Proverbs. Eloquence the speaking well as unto God. Well, our pursuit of this theme will be taken up in four parts. We're going to look tonight at the power of words. Then in the days ahead, we're going to look at a particular category of powerful words, that is, words of advice, both spoken and heard. Thirdly, then, we're going to look at the characteristics of good words. And then finally, the making of good words. So, tonight, the power of words. Now, that we should speak of the power of words should not surprise us. 
however much we may have heard the nursery rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's profoundly mistaken. It shouldn't surprise us because, because in God's image, our word-making follows God's word-making. And God's words do things. God speaks. Something happens. It creates a relationship. God says, let there be light. And there is light. And it is good. God says to Adam and Eve, you may have all of, the, of all the trees in the garden, but not this one. But in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. A curse will follow. God speaks blessings in covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. And his words do not fail. They create, they establish, they sustain what he has said. So the prophet in Isaiah 55, 11 declares, So shall my words be what goes from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I propose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Or the wise men in Proverbs 30 at verse 5, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, lest you be found a liar. And in the image of God, our words do things too. That we do things with words means we must take words seriously. We must take them seriously for our own good. So the writer of Proverbs notes that if words are foolish or wicked, they bring temporal pains and penalties. Proverbs 14.3 By the mouth of the fool comes a rod for his back but the lips of the wise will preserve them. Do you get the point? His mouth brings the rod. Now, of course, <laughs> there are steps intervening, but what the wise man is trying to help us see is that regardless of what steps are intervening, there is a direct line between the foolishness that came from his mouth and that rod. On the contrary, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. Again, there are many steps in between, but the point is there's a line between speaking wisely and the preservation of life. Proverbs 18.6, the same idea. A fool's lips walk into a fight. <laughs> Striking image. Can you imagine? You, you think of the Western, uh, the barroom scene. The swinging doors are flung open. Not some dusty old cow rustler 
but a pair of lips staggering into the bar room. And he is ready for a fight. His mouth, says the wise man, invites a beating. So, our words bring things to pass. They're powerful. Uh, They bring temporal pains or punishments. So, too, our words can bring good repute. Proverbs 16, 13. Righteous words are a delight to a king. He loves him who speaks what is right. Here a person prospers because he spoke uprightly to one who is ready to hear uprightly, and it does good to his cause. The same idea is repeated in Proverbs 22.11. He who loves purity of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king for his friend. Again, the assumption is of an upright king, but this kind of speeching gains, gains profit for the speaker. Speaking can store up good or it can store up disaster. Proverbs ten fourteen, The wise lay up knowledge, but the mouth of fools bring ruin near. The mouth of the fool, Proverbs eighteen seven, is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. Proverbs seventeen twenty, a man of crooked heart does not discover good, and one with a dishonest tongue falls into calamity. Here we see what words can do. And finally, we see the ultimate disaster, that words can either bring death or deliverance. Proverbs 12, 6, the words of the wicked lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright delivers them. Now, this teaching is not simply a matter of our personal good, not a matter of personal morality, but words are powerful with respect to every part of our lives, particularly, the wise man notes, with respect to the good of the community. Those words are designed, or the outcome of which is good or evil. Proverbs 25, 23. The north wind brings rain and a backbiting tongue, angry looks. Do you get the force of that? Here's an observation about understanding nature and its outward uh, indications. Wind brings a, a rain and saying that the same thing belongs to human nature, that a backbiting tongue just as surely is going to bring angry looks, destruction in a relationship. So Proverbs 26, 20. For lack of a wood, of wood, fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. 
the same idea. An observation about nature. If you don't have wood, a fire won't burn. There's no no, uh, fuel there, combustible, to cause it to continue. And so, too, then, quarreling is tied to the fuel of the whisperer in the community. This is true in a household. Proverbs 25, 24. It's better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Now, this is not a PC proverb, but the proverbs weren't concerned with political correctness. And the fact of the matter, in almost every age, there have been those who have been willing to testify to the truth of this observation. But regardless of who the personal parties are, it is certainly better to live in the corner of an attic with anybody who's quarrelsome. So too with respect to our neighbors. Proverbs eleven twelve. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Uh, notice here what's being said. It is a belittling that serves no useful purpose. That's understood. And therefore the person is ready to restrain himself, even though the neighbor may deserve some correction, there's nothing to be gained by it. And therefore, the sensible person doesn't stir up the trouble. And so, too, with respect to neighbors. Proverbs sixteen twenty-eight, or excuse me, with respect to friends. A dishonest man spreads strife, The whisperer separates close friends. Here, even an intimacy of relationship and trust undermined by a person who is prepared to use speech in a way that would corrupt relationships. In fact, the whole city is put under threat by such behavior. Proverbs 11.11 By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. But by the mouth of the wicked, it is overthrown. By the mouth of the wicked, a city is overthrown. That's how powerful speech is. Now here with respect to a whole city. The same thing in Proverbs 17.7. Fine speech is not becoming to a fool. Still less is false speech to a prince. Do do, do you see what's being said here? The fool, well, he isn't going to have false speech, fine speech. But false speech with respect to a prince is going to undermine the prince's authority and office. Those with responsibility of governing must speak the truth. Otherwise, destruction is not long in coming thereafter. That's the power of words. With respect to personal well-being, with respect to the well-being of the community. 
Now, according to the wise man, the good news is this, that the wrong words won't finally prevail. Proverbs 10.31 The mouth of the righteous bring forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. It may succeed for a time, but the outcome of the power of the perverse tongue is that it would be cut off. Proverbs 12, 19. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Now, it doesn't seem that way to you and I, but in the entire scheme of things, the liar is a passing thing of hardly any moment. And we see this with respect to the liars of human history. And they won't prevail because God is the judge of unrighteous speech. No matter how powerful that speech is, there's one whose word is more powerful and is set against unrighteous speech. Proverbs twenty-two, uh, Proverbs twelve twenty-two. Lying lips are an abomination to Yahweh, but those who act faithfully are his delight. The Hebrew word there is used, uh, translated abomination, is one of the strongest words for the description of something that's disgusting that belongs to the Hebrew language. We hear the same thing in Proverbs 6.16. There are six things that Yahweh hates, seven that are an abomination to him. One who, his, through his speech, sows discord among brothers. Thus the power of words according to the scriptures, according to the wise man of Israel. Now there are qualifications. There are limits to the power of words. First, words may be employed in a way that is inconsistent with other actions and thus vitiate their power. Proverbs 14.23 In all toil there is profit, but mere talk tends only poverty. In other words, you know the phrase, he talks a good game. Talking without anything that follows and supports is going to be undermined. It doesn't have power in and of itself. Second, false words cannot finally hide what is really the cause. Words cannot finally create reality. Rather, reality will expose false words. That's the hope that we have in a creator God. Proverbs 26, 23 and following. Like the glaze covering an earthen vessel are the fervent lips with an evil heart. 
Now this proverb is important for our household. Uh, we have earthen vessels, a many, in our house. Pots thrown that haven't been glazed. And although the form of the pot without glaze has a certain beauty to it, unglazed, it is frail, it is weak, it is ultimately useless to its end. It needs that glaze. But the earthen vessel, apart from that glaze, is corrupt. And the point is that whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceits in his heart. He wants a glaze covering to what is, in fact, ultimately not useful. He who speaks graciously, believe him not if there are seven abominations of his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Uh, my mother's version of this uh, proverb was in three words. Truth will out. She constantly reminded us to ward us off the temptation of lying. Truth will out. Thirdly, this is qualified by the truth that these words don't work automatically. Proverbs twenty nine nineteen. By mere words, a servant is not disciplined. For though he understands, he will not respond. That is, a, a person who is unwilling, whose heart is turned away, can't be changed by words in and of themselves. He won't respond if his heart is not in it. Rather, it requires a ready recipient. Proverbs 17.10 A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows to a fool. There's the point powerfully put that if I get it, if my heart is in tune with it, if I receive it, that goes deep into who I am in a way that a hundred blows will never touch my sensibilities. Proverbs 17, 4. An evildoer listens to wicked lips and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. That's the sensibility of one who wants nothing to do with the truth. Now, with these qualifications, nonetheless, the sages would help have us be well persuaded of the power of words. And thus, they want us to know how to do things well with words. So, let me ask us, what are we to make of all of this? Well, first, we need to be sobered 
with respect to the power of words, for good or for ill. Dorothy Sayers, uh, the great, uh, amazing scholar, uh, medievalist, um, translator of Dante, and yet uh, uh, most known for her delightful uh, Lord Peter Whimsey mysteries, um, she wrote this many years ago in an address um, about the power of words. She said, we must recognize this truth for the sake of our children. That is that words are powerful. If we don't see this, we will continue to let our young men and women go out unarmed in a day when armor is never so necessary. By teaching them all to read, We have left them at the mercy of the printed word. By the invention of the film and the radio, we have made certain that no aversion to reading shall secure them from the incessant battery of words, words, words. They do not know what the words mean. They do not know how to ward them off or to blunt their edge or to fling them back They are prey to words in their emotions of studying instead of being the master of of words in their minds. That's what the wise man is getting at here. And we need to be sobered with respect to the power of words and take up then the capacity, uh, the the calling to help uh, our young people and our brethren to understand the power of words so that they're capable of engaging words that are foolish, words that are uh, lying words, that are destructive words. And that can be only by the capacity of seeing words for what they are. We must recognize this truth for the sake of our callings. Recognize that whenever I speak, I am doing something with words. Whenever I speak, I am doing something in the world with words. I'm revealing myself to another person. I'm engaging another person such that he he or she has a, a, a representation of who I am. I am calling for a response from that person. And thus I am entering into an accountable relationship with that person. This is a profound reality that ought not to be thoughtlessly engaged in. We are all of us called to do whatever we do to the glory of God. How well are we doing to the glory of God in this matter. How well will I do in what I say, in the way I speak to others? Consider Jesus. Jesus is the wisdom of the sages personified. Jesus knew well that death and life 
are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruits. But as with last week, we seem to have a dilemma concerning this teaching. For what fruits did Jesus eat? Jesus only spoke good words, but his words brought him destruction. Why? Well, recall that the sages have taught us that good words must have a will, willing to receive on the part of the hearer. And thus Jesus explained the matter in John 8 at 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you can't bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But here's the point. The father approved of Jesus' words. He said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And Christ did in fact eat the good fruit of his word. For the Father vindicated the words of his Son. As we hear in John 12 at verse 48, Jesus said, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Jesus' words are not just a matter of light, but they are powerful to transform. As he said in John 6.63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So, those who hear well will get it. This is Peter's wonderful testimony in John chapter 6 at verse 68. Jesus has spoken hard words. There are many who are turning away from him. And he looks to the 12 and he says, will you go away as well? And Peter's ears have been opened. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus is now doing things with words. He has appointed his apostles for this very purpose. As John testifies in the first epistle at verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to it the eternal life 
which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which you ha- we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The scripture is not simply a matter of conveying information. Jesus speaks. He reveals himself. He calls upon us to respond in faith, hope, and love. And our response is to the praise of his glory, a relationship with him. So he is promised in John 8. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That is the power of words. That is the good thing that Jesus is doing through his words in our lives. That is what we are called to do with words. We should give thanks. Amen. Well, let me uh, stop there and um, give you a chance to catch your breath and If you have questions or comments or concerns that you'd like to raise, I'm happy that we have a, I I tried to keep a little bit of time so that we could uh, uh, have a conversation. Um, Anybody, uh, uh, a thought, a concern, a question? Could you send the the PDF when you send around the invitation? Uh, If not, can you forward that on with all the verses together? Uh, that's what I put in the app. Oh, it's in there. Okay. Um, I mean, you put it in the chat, right? Or the chat, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I guess I can just download it from there. Sorry, never mind. But I, 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 I'm glad to email it as well, Chris, if it didn't work. No, no it's, I, I was able to download it and open it up. So, well, yeah. I, wa- I wasn't. If you'll email it out, that'd be great. Sure. Okay. Oh, all right. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's a, don't apologize. It's fine. I, I probably should have been able to download it. I didn't even think about it. But, um, a lot of good content there, stuff I want to kind of chew on. And sure. Week, so thanks. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll put that in an email to everybody as soon as we get off. Other th- thoughts, concerns? Dave, one thing I was thinking about is it's not in, in what you've been reading is because there can be a tendency... To think that the words we choose and what we say are all that's important, but it's the words that are coming out of our heart, not just not just a a, a fake conversation, right? But a genuine movement that God has used in our hearts to make us communicate. Yes, and and we're gonna uh, Bonnie. As we go ahead, we're gonna talk more about that. Um, the the uh, connection between. Um, what we desire most, and then our our desire to be best adapted to communicate that. So those two things are in coordination in our life. Um, so the simple way to put it is that if I'm a person that has a heart for missions in France, uh, I can have the deepest desire possible 
to have them understand the gospel or to understand kindness on my part. But if I can't speak French, it's futile. And so I, at the same time, I have to work diligently to have at, at hand the means to fulfill that deep desire. Um, on, on the other hand, uh, uh, no desire of the heart but uh, simply a mechanistic uh, uh, use of terms is not going to be fulfilling to God's calling either. Am I speaking? Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Because I was thinking about um, someone saying something that they don't really think or don't really believe and they're just saying it because they want you to feel better or they want you yes. to think nicely of them. That's not true words being used truthfully. That's right. And that's not what this is talking about. This yep. is, what this is talking about is genuine, pure communication of, of truth. Yes. Yep. That's great, Bonnie. Okay. Other thoughts? Anybody? Uh, a concern? Uh... Dave, um, I think part of what I get it was all very, very interesting, and like Chris said, I want to mull over it. Part of what I, I get caught up with at the hearing of, of this past 45 minutes is so much of our communication is extremely informal. How are you? Doing fine, thanks. You know, and, and a lot of um, informalities that in some ways, at least at first blush, don't seem to um, require the same thoughtfulness. Now, of course, you're not saying every single word requires the same sort of deliberation, but it almost makes me wonder if that itself is is something we need to think about, how... how um, our society is is so casual and informal with words, not even to get into Twitter and, and social media and all that, but um, and how we um, should appreciate the the variation of language and and apply thoughtfulness where it's where it's more appropriate. I don't know, as you can tell, as I said, I'm getting caught up in the whole topic, which is vast. It was very interesting and thoughtful tonight. Yeah, you're making a great point, Paul, and what we're going to try and get at later on, and, and the Apostle uh, Paul gets to this, that uh, that our words have to be apt, and that's going to be a crucial element of the power of words. Uh, and we'll look at uh, circumstances where they're not apt and how it makes them devoid of power. Um, and uh, But it does, it does uh, provoke us to concern about any culture that wants to um, empty occasions for interactions between people that are uh, uh, um, anything more than superficial. 
and um, I, I mean, I, I think that is part of the crisis we faced face at at least uh, in this country now um, that words are no longer a communication of person to person, but they're code words for which um, power group you belong to. And almost like an insignia that you wear on your uniform that they identify as you being on the right side as opposed to you communicating um, uh, your understanding of the nature of who you are, who that person is, the way the world is, um, and thus contributing to a deeper and richer uh, possibility for relationship. Yeah, the word superficial is a better word than informal, is it? at least in a number of cases. Thanks, that's, that's helpful. Other thoughts? Well, uh, I'm very grateful to you all for uh, participating tonight. Next uh, Wednesday, we won't gather. Uh, unfortunately, um, and I, I say that in an informal sense, um, <laughs> I'll be in Atlanta um, for the... Uh, fall meeting of the Standing Judicial Commission. So please pray for uh, me and for uh, the commission as it meets. We have an extraordinarily uh, difficult uh, agenda. And um, uh, so pray for us that we would be faithful and uh, be useful in trying to help sort out uh, the difficulties before us. Uh, but I'll miss you, but look forward to being with you the week following. Um, let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We thank you for the richness of your word, and we pray that you'd help us to um, understand it and to embrace it. And we pray especially that you'd help us to uh, be sober-minded with respect to the great gift of speech that you've given us and that you would help us to be mindful of the power of words and that we would not want to be irresponsible with respect to that power, uh, but that we would want to um, embrace it as a great gift uh, to act after the manner of the image that we bear and to use our words for good. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen.